הם... Okay, now that your Bibles are open, let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks this morning. We sing praises, and now we come to hear from you, to draw us further into praise, to remember why we give thanks to build our confidence and faith in you who remains steadfast in your loving kindness and grace, who's given us a hope for eternity to come in your glory. So we present ourselves to you as your people, as your sheep that are in need of food, need of protection, need of guidance. So Lord, I pray that you would break through our icy hearts and that you'd set them ablaze by truth, by opportunity to commune with you, and by the enjoyment and the pleasure of doing so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're back on schedule in the Sermon on the Mount here, and we are continuing and beginning now this Sunday, to look at the Lord's model prayer, which I think is maybe the appropriate way to look at the Lord's prayer. Most of you know the Lord's prayer. Some of you even grew up saying it in school or before sporting events, or maybe this is a tradition in your home that you say the Lord's prayer at certain events or before meals or at holidays. Whatever the case may be, uh, we know what this is. But I I'm going to cover this model prayer in one sermon because Jesus here is giving us kind of a rubric and we can kind of pick it apart and investigate why he covers the things that he covers here. So we've already finished several weeks ago discussing what not to do in prayer, or who not to imitate in prayer. And he's basically telling his disciples now that are following him that uh, your time in Israel has not taught you how to pray because those who have been in charge over you spiritually don't know how to pray. They don't know the Lord. And, And really, to know the Lord is to know how to pray. So, for instance, I know how to speak to my wife versus how I speak to Andy. There's sometimes different conversations and different tones. I know who I am speaking to or what we're talking about. Well, the same goes for the Lord, right? We've already, uh, Jesus has already addressed that. He, He is not at all impressed with the hypocrites who think they're addressing the Lord or like to make other people think they're addressing the Lord, but have no reverence, have no um, idea of the holiness, have no idea of the intimacy that they can approach him with. And so they really don't approach him. They just kind of put on a scene of prayer. And we don't want to do that. We, we, 
are being taught here by the only begotten Son Himself the right way to pray. And there is a right way to pray. If there's a wrong way, then there is a right way. And you say, well, what if I'm just praying from the heart? Is that wrong? If I am just telling God what's on my heart and on my mind, and I said, no, that, that may, not, may not be wrong, but get a Bible and connect the heart with the head. Learn here from Jesus how we do communicate with the Father, what is appropriate, what we should ask for, what we do need to be thankful for, what he is worthy of praise for, and more importantly, who he is. So we look at this to follow the Lord's model. And also, I think this is interesting for us sometimes. It's not long, is it? Sometimes people laugh at me when they ask me to pray before meals because I'm a pastor and that's part of my role, right? People ask me to pray all the time. Uh, and sometimes I'll just give quick thanks and then they kind of chuckle. But I have an ongoing conversation with my father. And I don't know why it is wrong to offer him a simple thanks. I, I don't need to put many words before him for him to understand what's in my heart when I speak. Now, that's not to say long prayers are bad. Usually, in private, your prayer is longer than if you're praying corporately or together. But it is interesting that he just kind of railed against the empty phrases and the long prayers that the Pharisees offer up, and then he gives you, uh, you know, about four verses worth of prayer here to follow. So, we're looking to him to learn how to pray. And there's nobody that can give us a lesson on communication with the Father uh, better than the one who has eternally existed in a loving relationship with him in constant communion, in glory, perfect communication. And so, we first read that we are to pray then like this, verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Notice that Jesus is using the plural to address the Father. So it's personal and it's plural. He is the Father of his people. Okay, now Israel understands God as Father of the nation. They always have. They have never understood him as individually, intimately father, as they are his children individually. They've never known that. So for Jesus to communicate that intimate, personal address that begins a prayer is revolutionary to them. It's revolutionary, and it's a really big deal, right? Because we learn in Romans 8 that we, are, we can call him Abba, Father. We can call him Dad. We are addressing him specifically. He is hearing us individually while he is also hearing us corporately. Jesus escapes into private prayer and he also prays with his disciples. 
Paul and Silas are praying, certainly individually and together in prison, and while Peter and some of the other disciples are praying together in different houses. There is private and there is corporate prayer, but there is that ability to directly go to your father as father. This reality that through Jesus, God has also become our father, our dad, is, should be a constant meditation for us because it draws us further into the intimacy. It gives us further confidence and hope that he cares for us on an individual level. And that is certainly some of you are fathers or have had fathers. Whatever your experience is, you know what the expectations are for good fatherhood. And, and God perfectly personifies what it means to be a good father. And so to understand him as such is to approach him with great faith and great hope and great confidence and great trust to bring great peace to you. And, I, and I've learned from some of you that there's a, a generation of you that, that weren't quite invited in to the intimacy that God is calling for, how he presses into the sinner in such a beautiful father-like way. And so it is, it is fresh and, and new and fills you with a new zeal to realize through the scriptures that Yes, God cares for you even as you stumble. God cares for you even though he knows the thoughts and the words before they escape your mouth. That he still loves and is bringing to completion this good and awesome work to conform you into the image of his son because he is your father. He loves to a degree that you and I have yet to comprehend, but we'll spend our lifetimes and then into eternity understanding. If you ever disconnect how deeply and intimately God loves you as your father, then your faith will quickly take a nosedive. We have to <clears throat> sit on this, couch our thoughts and our meditations on this, and the more we recognize him as father, the quicker we run to him. The, the easier it is, it is for us to go to him in enjoyment. And obviously, the quicker we are to run to him in disappointment and in failure and in despair. So, him being father is first and foremost how we need to look at him when we approach him. And it's a blessing through Jesus, the greatest blessing, right? John Calvin says it this way, We may venture more freely to call God our father because his only son, in order that we might have a father in common with him, chose to be our brother. So oftentimes you may hear me or others here approach God through the blood of Jesus or in Jesus' name because that's the only way that we come to him as Father. 
And Jesus' disciples are going to learn to recognize that. And praise in that. Third, you know, maybe I should have taken a sermon just to investigate how good it is that he is our father. It's, it's been transformative for my spiritual growth to look at these things. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Obviously, God is holy. So what are we saying here? When, what are we to know when Jesus is telling us how to address the Father? Well, it's, it's a reminder that as we're reminded he's our Father, we're reminded that he's our Holy Father, that he is set apart as holy. That in fact, day and night, in his presence, the angels are pronouncing the perfection or the, the, the fullness of his holiness by repeating it. But we're also looking to this, as we are personally addressing our Father, we are also seeking his holiness in our hearts and in our lives, in our thoughts etc. So you see in this prayer, even from the beginning, that Jesus is doing a lot of helping us to remember who God is, which is Israel's downfall throughout the Old Testament. The cyclical nature of their disobedience and um, rebellion and forgetfulness of God is caused by simply disregarding who God is and what he's done and what he's promised. So if every time we pray, we first help to remind ourselves by acknowledging who it is that we're speaking to or who he is, then that's one way to safeguard ourselves from sin. Sin in prayer, which is possible, and sin in life. We live under a holy father. John MacArthur says, you, Christian, are an instrument through whom God displays his holiness in the world. If his name is to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven, it must first be hallowed in your life. How does God make his holiness known here? Certainly the book of nature is open and unfolded. You can see uh, the natural world and you can investigate uh, the sciences and you can begin to see that the creator is far greater, far more intelligent, far more beautiful than we could imagine by simply what he creates. But more importantly, he is making the gospel visible through his people. If you are to be conformed into his image, if that's God's goal for you, if that's his vision for you, is to be conformed into the image of his son, well, who, who's his son? He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the visibility, he's the manifestation of God. Now, I'm not saying he's making you God. That's not at all what I'm saying. But he is making you like Jesus in the flesh as a man who perfectly lived in obedience to a father and personified his love 
loved him completely and loved others more than himself. We are what God uses to proclaim to the world that he is holy, holy, holy. So is it a big problem when they look at us and don't see him? Yes. We are about seeing you see him. One way that we do that is we follow him. We conform to his image. We display him in what we do and what we say. How we love and how we live. You are responsible for bearing that image as a Christian. So take it very serious that you could either show, reveal God to people, or you could do quite the opposite. Also know that God is at work for the sake of his name. Now that sounds egotistical and selfish, doesn't it? But that's not the case with God. That's the case with us. But when God does that, when he works for the sake of his name, he puts on display that holiness that we're talking about here. He, he puts on display the mercy and the grace that characterize him to a degree that we can hardly fathom. He, he makes known what righteousness looks like and how justice will meet evil. If you read your Old Testament for any length of time, you will hear God say that he did this or that for the sake of his name, or so that his name would not be profaned. And then you move into Acts in the New Testament, and you see the very same thing. That Paul works, that Peter works for the sake of his name, because when his name is known among the nations, his holiness is known, and his grace and mercy are known, and therefore people get saved. So, in essence, what we're asking here is that God would reveal the holiness of his name for the sake of his name here on earth. Is that your desire for people to know that through you? When they come into your house, when they see you at work, when they see your relationships, maybe even when they come to worship with you, are they getting that? They're not going to get it perfectly. You are being sanctified. You're being made holy, which means you're not holy yet. But is the aroma of Christ and his holiness present in your life, albeit imperfect? Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is all about bringing to bear the kingdom of God here on earth, or revealing the kingdom of God here on earth. And in essence, what you can gather from the New Testament about what the kingdom of God is, it's Christ's reign in his people, the church, here on earth and into eternity. It's a revelation of something 
different than what exists in the world. It's his presence. His presence is the presence of holiness here. If Jesus doesn't come and inaugurate uh, uh, the kingdom by saving his people and imparting to them his spirit, then people have no idea what the kingdom of God looks like. When you and I go into a different country, call it a kingdom, they have certain customs and ways, and maybe they even look a certain way. And so you expect certain things from certain places on earth. But if you are now brought into a kingdom of God, what characterizes that? What's that look like when people are curious about this kingdom that you belong to? Well, you can certainly point to the fruit of the Spirit, which would be holiness. And as we revisited in the past couple of weeks, it would be this kind of uh, devoted, whole heart love for God. And then because of that, a love for neighbor. We know that the kingdom uh, is run by a king who is so benevolent in kindness and mercy that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, that he works all things for good to those who love him, that he has promised to come bring us to where he is so there's an eternal hope, a culmination of the kingdom to come. And so his people live in light of that. And that's what people see from his kingdom subjects here on earth. And so right now, you, hopefully, are a part of him building that kingdom or that kingdom coming. And it's, and it's being revealed day by day. And we know from Romans 8, once again, that sums up so much important doctrine and truth for us in the Bible. Uh, creation is longing for that. Longing for that kingdom to be revealed. Longing to see what it's going to look like for uh, all creation to be set free from its bondage and corruption. To see this king reign completely. To, to subdue all his enemies under his feet. To cast them out to where they cannot ever touch or enter or affect his kingdom in any way. Anybody ever seen the movie Independence Day? It was a, it was a goofy alien movie. Gosh, was it late 90s, mid-90s? Will Smith, you know, and slowly but surely, this big giant alien spaceship just comes into view in the Earth's atmosphere. And it's kind of, as it slowly moves in, people are kind of curious and they're staring at it and they're, you know, obviously terrified but also curious and they begin to make assumptions about it and they begin to gather and figure out what they're going to do about it. And then eventually, right, uh, it kind of unleashes on the world and a battle ensues. Well, understand that the kingdom is being slowly revealed like that. And we know what's coming. There's not a real battle to come. There's going to be a gathering, Revelation 19, of people to set themselves, of evil forces to set themselves against 
the rider on the white horse, but that won't last long. Uh, out of his mouth will come a sword, and they will no longer exist in opposition to him. But you are a part of that slow dawning of this glorious kingdom, which will finally present itself with a new heavens and a new earth and a new city, a new Jerusalem. It's on its way. And in fact, you could say that it's already here. As he is present with his people, it's here. And by the way, the kingdom coming on earth is good for everybody. This is what the world does not realize. Uh, I, I think this is what most of our forefathers tried to do in setting up this country. Is he recognized that these, these Christian values, I hate saying that way, they're not Christian values, it's just Christian life. They benefit everyone so long as they recognize that they're good. If you don't recognize that God is good, then obviously you're going to be in opposition to that, and you'll want to be God who defines what is good. That's the problem in the garden, right? But the kingdom coming, the, the, the presence of Jesus here with his people, is where we get a, a genuine selflessness a desire to sacrifice for the good of others, seeing others as more important than yourself, a generosity that the world doesn't naturally know, hope, a desire to live at peace with one another, orderly organization. You, you, everything good comes from God, so his kingdom coming should be good, except for it's not good for his enemies. And he says, your will be done in that kingdom coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Ephesians 5.17, Paul wants them to know the will of God. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we know through Scripture that the will of the Lord is your sanctification. That the will of the Lord is to bring all things together for good, that the will of the Lord is to wrap this all up and so that his son has a holy bride and so that his enemies are no more. The will of the Lord is that his kingdom has come. On earth as it is in heaven, his decided will be done here and us praying this means we are for it. So notice that we are looking towards his will and not our own in this prayer. That, that's even Jesus in the garden, right? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He's showing us that. That we have to be aligned, and prayer is the way that we do that, be aligned with the will of God as the only will that's good. So you have to remember this in your prayers at all times. Because we don't always get what we want when we pray. But if you understand what the will of the Lord is, 
and that it's always for good, then you can even submit your desires under that and say, Lord, I want this, but maybe that's not good. We pray for healing for people, but maybe not, that's not what the good and perfect will of the Lord is. So I'm not going to stop praying for that. I, I'm not prohibited from praying for the healing of people physically. But I do understand that even in not healing here on earth, God may be revealing his will in that by doing things that you and I maybe don't understand through not healing so that we see it. Anyways, I digress. We're, we're looking for his will to be done here. Our Holy Father bringing forth his kingdom. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 19. Jesus tells his disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys are given to chosen agents used to carry out his will, building his church in holiness. And that is part of his will being done. Is that we are calling out what he's called out. And we are removing or purging evil from among us as he calls us to. And he's used us as chosen agents for his will to be done as it already is in heaven. Now here's an, uh, here's an important one. Give us this day our daily bread. This is really hard for us. We have refrigerators that are full. We have grocery stores that are minutes away. And so we don't quite understand what it means to ask for daily bread. But even in light of all that, you can recognize that he alone provides. He alone has given opportunity. He alone has laid out um, food for us to get. Israel in Exodus 16, when they're gathering manna, he puts it out there. They still go get it but he put it out there. It's, it's a way of reminding ourselves that we are not the provider. Especially as men, we pride ourselves on that, and our pride is hurt when we don't feel like we're good providers in a tangible way. But the, but the fact of the matter is, I don't care whether you're rich or poor, God alone provides. You can fast forward to verses 25 through 34 at the end of chapter 6. And you can, you can see that, that Jesus tells us that. That he's going to clothe, that he's going to feed, just like he does the birds of the air. He's going to put that out there for you. So that's not your concern. Your concern is the kingdom. You have a freedom to search wholeheartedly after those things while he gives you every day what you need. He knows you need to live. He knows you need to be clothed. He knows you need to eat. He knows you need to drink. So trust him to give that to you. In Exodus 16, when, he give, when he's giving Israel 
food in the wilderness. He's giving them manna in the morning, and he's giving them, I think, quail in the evening. They're told about the manna to gather only for the day. And then what happens? Some of them, of course, try to um, disobey that and keep over manna for the next day, and it rots instantly. It gets worms, and it rots, and it's not edible the next day. What's he doing? What's he doing with that? Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses reminding them as their time in the wilderness is coming to an end. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus uh, repeats this as he's tempted in the wilderness to make food for himself. Jesus said to them, my, or this is, okay, this is, whoop, I got way off context here. This is not what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, okay, in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus recognizes that, that the most important thing for the day is the kingdom. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, God will feed him. He recognizes that. Earlier on in chapter uh, 4 of, of Matthew, that in the wilderness, his goal out there is not to get food, but to be tested for righteousness' sake. So that's his concern. It's not food. We make such a to-do about getting food, getting more food. We pride ourselves in how we can get food and what we can do with that food. I mean, last night I made some awesome buffalo wings, okay? You should know that. They were amazing. But that was put on my plate by the Lord. So it bugs me to death and makes me so sad with my own spirit that I can look at a plate of food and not give thanks. How can that be possible? Only in an affluent culture of plenty do we think that we got for ourselves. I think Satan has more success with a church in a place who has more than enough. Because pride begins to sneak in. Everything's good. I'm good. I have all I need. What else do I need? Well, even if your fridge is full, you need to pray every day according to Jesus. He's not unaware of what it's going to be like in the future in Holt, Missouri in 2023, Give us this day our daily bread. And by the way, Jesus seems to present the idea that that's more than food. That we do not live by food alone. But our focus is to be on the word of God. And so what's he looking for here? Us to be looking for that. That even before we eat in the morning, that... We are desperate 
to get that meal of his word, that nourishment from his lips, from his heart to give us what we need. And seemingly tied to that, because there's a not a break in the sentence structure, we put commas there, but verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew Henry, some of you will know him from his, he's an old Puritan, but you can access his commentaries on the whole Bible for free online. Our daily bread does but feed us as lambs for the slaughter. If our sins be not pardoned, it intimates, likewise, that we must pray for daily pardon as duly as we pray for daily bread. Now, you are justified once and for all in Jesus, right? That is a declaration from Romans 8, 1 and 8, 30. We are, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus uh, Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we are remembering then, in essence, as 1 John tells us, that we're not without sin because we've been justified. But now we're engaged with a battle against a former master that has no dominion over us. And sometimes we lose the battle. We lose the battle, and so we know, as a holy, intimate father, we can run to him and confess that, and we know through Jesus that there is pardon. So you have a winning prayer life against your own sin. Because you can confess it to the Lord without condemnation, because there is no more in Christ Jesus. And you can be assured that there's pardon because you are justified in Christ Jesus. And if you had unforgiven sin, then you wouldn't be justified. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are justified. Therefore, it has no dominion over you. Paul says it, that doesn't mean you keep sinning, that his grace just continues to abound and, and like pile up or whatever. It, that, that's not how that works. That means you understand that it has no authority over you. It's taken care of. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? In Sunday school, we were going over Jeremiah 50, which I didn't realize was so awesome, but, but Marvin unpacked it for us. And in Jeremiah 50, 20, he, he says that he's going, that people are going to look for Israel's sin and they're not going to be able to find it. That, that he's going to forgive the remnant that he spares. So he just told you what we, read, what we read in Romans 8. You can't bring a charge against God's people because he forgave it. Both past, present, future. And if you're like me, sometimes you get scared about that and say, if I give in to this whole pardon thing when I am confessing sin, then I'm going to discount my sin and I'm going to go do it again. No. Press into the revelation of the glory of his mercy and grace and you'll realize that that is so much more powerful than your own sin or your own desire to sin. 
that rejoicing in the pardon that is yours. I don't like saying claiming that, but I mean, it's been given you, so use it. Rejoice in it. You don't have to be so beaten all the time because you've sinned. You can move on and overcome it. I know I'm going long, but this is important stuff. Also understand, as we also have forgiven our debtors, that if we get unforgiveness, if we get being, or if we get forgiveness, if we get being justified, if we know what God has done and the links he's gone to in our forgiveness, then, then we, uh, we know how to forgive people. And not doing that, not living in forgiveness ourselves, will hinder your prayers. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter tells husbands that they're to live in an understanding way with their wives. They're heirs with us of the grace of life. And if you don't do that, your, your prayers may be hindered. So you know, you know just inherently wrapped up in that human relationship of two sinners that if there is not a grace and and an exemplary model of the gospel from the husband to the wife, then your prayers are hindered. That's a promise. Unforgiveness hinders prayers. Now, what is unforgiveness? John MacArthur says it's the measure of self-righteousness, just as forgiveness is the measure of love. Unforgiveness is a measure of self-righteousness, just as forgiveness is the measure of love. We don't forgive because we're proud, self-righteous. We, everyone has sinned against us and they must pay. I've never sinned against anybody. That's being self-righteous. But forgiveness is a measure of love because we understand how much God has loved us in forgiveness. And so we outpour that same thing. You must be so moved and changed by the gospel that you overflow with gratefulness and thereby forgive as you have been forgiven. We'll cover this in verses 14 and 15 coming up next week. But it's such an offense to God. It's such an offense to the gospel when you live as though you don't get it. When you don't offer unforgiveness, even in the slightest, you are profaning the gospel and the gift of God in giving his son to forgive you. Don't do it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is really important. We read over this or we recite this from memory as the end of the Lord's Prayer and we just, we don't really take time to think about it. Notice that only God provides the way of escape from temptation. Matthew 4, Jesus knows the word of God, the commands of God, the will of God, so he escapes temptation. How about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. He provides the way of escape 
you overcome temptation. You look to overcome it any way except by looking to him, then you will fall. All you need is to live one day and you'll know that that's true. If I am not thinking or uh, acknowledging the commands of God by his spirit reminding me in time of temptation, then what, what's keeping me from doing it? What's keeping me from doing that thing? Do you see, again, why it's so important that you know the word? But as we are being sanctified, we're not yet holy. Temptations do remain. Why do they remain? James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing we learn from temptation we know that God doesn't tempt us but he may test us Jesus in the wilderness us today and then go to 12 through 14 in James 1 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are responsible for wanting to go off into that temptation. Without him, we succumb. Period. And they remain so that we learn how to remain steadfast and look to him. But our own heart manufactures that desire to be lured away. What about evil? So we're asking God to not even bring us into temptation. Don't bring us into that place. If there is temptation, you know that's from your own heart. He'll provide the way of escape and you'll grow from resisting that according to his word and then also deliver us from evil don't lead us into temptation and that also can be translated deliver us from the evil one jesus asked this of his for his people of his father in john 17 15 i do not ask that you would take them out of the world but that you would keep them from the evil one he is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour he has disguised himself as an angel of light so that he may lead you astray. But we have the Lord as our Father. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul assures them that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, isn't that interesting? Rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That would be through his forgiveness, his grace and mercy. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We are told throughout this model prayer to look to him. He provides completely, spiritually and physically. And only through him do we understand forgiveness 
and only through him are we uh, kept safe from temptation and evil or the evil one. Folks, the prayer, prayer orients you to depend on God. He knows what you need before you ask him. That's the end of the chapter. But you ask him because you're orienting yourself in dependence on him. And we already read in Deuteronomy 8, that's why he did things with Israel in the wilderness that he did. So that they learned to depend on him. That's why Paul says that they came to a point in their ministry where the despair of life itself because of all the persecution, but that was for the purpose of making them rely on, depend on God. So don't ever get too proud to think that you've become this strong, amazing Christian. You are in need of him 24-7. And prayer says that to him. And the sweetness of his fatherhood with you recognizes that, confirms that, and brings ultimate care to you as you depend on him. Because he's good. He knows how to give good gifts. He knows how to bring you where he wants you. So you must look to him. Prayer is the way to do that. Let's not be apathetic. Let's not discount the need for constant prayer. We are constantly dependent on him. Every one of you. And me. So pray to him now. Depend on him now and then we'll stand and sing.